here today with my advisee, Brooks Kitchell. First advisee, maybe, on the podcast. I thought you had Emmett on. Oh, we had Emmett on. We had Emmett on. We talked to Emmett a little bit, but yeah, welcome. Right. First senior advisee. How you doing, Brooks? I'm good. I'm good. How about yourself? Doing all right. It's Tuesday. We've got a you've got a day off tomorrow, but yeah. I've got some parent conferences. Um, let's talk a little bit to begin about Bowdoin College. I've never been to Bowdoin, and I know you are committed there next year to play lacrosse and go to school and study. And uh, what was it like? I guess the first time you went up to Bowdoin, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so I mean, over the summer, in like July, the coach reached out to me about possibly going up to visit, and I was pretty excited, and Maine gets a rep for being pretty cold, Mm -hmm. Um, but the day I went up there was in like late July, it was like 80 degrees and sunny, and beautiful, and probably not the most realistic uh, view of what it's like for the majority of the year, Mm -hmm. but um, it was absolutely beautiful. I mean, the campus is... It's a pretty small campus. Everything's walkable, which I like. A lot of, like, old historic buildings. Um, And I just sort of fell in love with it. The combination of athletics and academics, really high-quality lacrosse team. I mean, they were just ranked sixth in the preseason polls for D3 in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also an incredible school. Like, all the NESCACs up there, you're getting a great education. And they have a great government and legal studies major, which is what I'm interested in. Um, It's the most... Uh, it's like the major that the most, the majority of the people at school take, I think like 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the most taken major. And there are some really cool classes that you get that's a part of the liberal arts education. Um, so like the biggest class there has 100 kids in it, which is very different from like a lot of the lecture style classes that you get at some of the bigger schools. And I've always preferred the smaller classes that are more like Socratic discussions and a lot of... Um, yeah, where you have, like, a more intimate relationship with the people in your class as well as the teacher. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting because I feel like the last couple of years, maybe after COVID, I've picked up on a trend among high school seniors who are going off to college that a lot of students want, like, the big feel of a big school with a lot of people, like the Michigans and the Alabamas, like a big football school, because I think after COVID – you know, people wanted to be a part of something big and feel, and it's interesting, you know, and I'm, I'm excited for you. When you committed, I was very glad that you chose Bowdoin uh, as a school to go to next year. Um, but it's interesting because it's kind of a rare, like we don't have guys going to the NESCACs all too often. And Jeff Crosby is another guy who I've taught and he's going up to Colby. Um, but it's interesting that you're choosing a, a smaller school, smaller field, Socratic method in classes, I think it's a great choice. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just how I've always learned best. And, like, of course, there are perks to going to, like, one of the big schools where you get, like, the football games and the big, like, atmospheres and environments and things like that. But I'm I'm also going to have friends who go to those kind of schools who I can go visit for a weekend to go to a football game with. Like, one of my good friends, George Guyton, is going to Notre Dame. Like, I'll... I bet you I'm going to end up at a Notre Dame football game next year. Um, And it's funny you bring up Jeff because I was actually up at Bowdoin this last weekend for a visit with all the lacrosse recruits, and they were playing Colby in hockey and whooped him pretty bad 5-1. Nice. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty funny. But I'm super excited to be close to him. Mm -hmm. They're only about 30, 45 minutes apart, and we're pretty good friends, so we're super excited about that. I assume people bring their cars up to Bowdoin. Yeah, so freshman year you're not supposed to have one. 
Um, and I, most kids don't bring one up, but being on the lacrosse team, you sort of are able to like take a upperclassman's car if you really need to. Oh, is the um, field a drive away? No, the field's not a drive, but if you're trying to go somewhere or if you need to go pick someone up or do something, like they're, the team's really close, so you're able to grab a car if you need it. But sophomore year and on, and I know Jeff was saying that at Colby you're allowed to have a car as a freshman, so he might end up bringing his up. Who knows? Yeah. I think from an academic perspective, it's no-brainer. Like The NESCAC schools are the, some of the best schools in the country, obviously. But from an athletic perspective, I think – it's also a great move. I mean, I, you know, I went to Harvard, played lacrosse, played Division One, but I always have thought about, you know, and when I was looking at schools, I was considering playing Division Three lacrosse because, you know, you're going to be on the field. And Division One sometimes it's a crapshoot. It's like, uh, you know, some some years you just are behind someone and it's so competitive and you're constantly trying to get a spot and a lot of these schools in the NESCAC you're competing for something every year you're hopefully you're going to be on the field um, and it's a great combination or balance between athletics and academics yeah I completely agree with you I think that there are a lot of the perks in D1 that you don't necessarily get D3 with like for like nicer weight rooms and facilities and more time together with practices and things like that and nutritionists and things like they're a list of things that you get from the D1 perspective that you maybe don't get at D3, but they're also a list of things that you get D3 that you can't do D1. Mm -hmm. Like junior year, every single kid on the Bowdoin lacrosse team goes abroad in the fall. Right. That's something that you can't do if you're going to a D1 school. Um, and the quality of lacrosse is really good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a lot, especially up in the NESCACs, it's a lot of the sort of Northeast private schools private school kids who are like, that's like quality lacrosse up there. At Bowdoin, they recruit a lot out of D.C., so they're a good number of Georgetown Prep and Landon and those kind of kids. I mean, last year we had, we had a kid who took his fifth year at Maryland, and you see it all the time coming out of the NESCACs where kids who have a fifth year of eligibility, they'll go take it at one of these big D1 schools and start a master's program there during their fifth year. It's really high-quality lacrosse. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I guess for me, it really made a lot of sense. So let me ask you, because when you're in high school, a lot of times as, a, as an athlete, you're in your mind, like, I just want to play Division One. Like, I've, I've played this sport my whole life. The, the, the dream for a lot of guys is to play Division One lacrosse. And sometimes players can't really see outside of just the D1 mindset. And in some cases, they'll go to a, like, lower-end program or not as high-caliber D1 program just so they can – have the D1 uh, moniker or say that they played Division One, But I'm wondering for you, because I think you're a good example of a guy who maybe saw outside of that, but for a while you did want to play Division One, And I'm curious what made you, I guess, see like the bigger picture that there are schools like Bowdoin that have really good lacrosse, great academics. You know, it seems to fit what I want and I can do all these different things in a pretty well-balanced way. Yeah, so I think there were definitely a couple of factors. I mean, it's every kid's dream to go play, like as a lacrosse player coming out of Baltimore to go play D1 lacrosse at one of the big names. And myself, like pretty much every other kid in Baltimore had that dream. Um, I tore my ACL freshman and sophomore year. And so that's sort of going into, you know, as you know, nowadays, the summer going into junior year is a huge recruiting summer. Like a good majority of kids will recruit um, get recruited to like the sort of top set of schools during that time. And I was just coming back from injury that summer. So I was not playing my best lacrosse that year. 
Um, and so I think sort of after that summer, talking with my club coaches about like some of the other options while like always keeping D1 open as like an opportunity, like something could happen, but we knew it probably wasn't that likely because for me, like I'm going to college to go to school. So that crosses off 80% of D1 programs just like off the bat. Um, and as my dad always said, he claimed to have veto power. So if I picked a particular school that he felt like wasn't strong enough academically, then, uh, he had the power to veto that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that sort of always made it like sort of like an Ivy if it was going to be D1 or like there are a select group of schools that are really good schools outside the Ivy League, but they all have like top quality lacrosse programs um, or like the NESCACs and there's some really high academic D3 schools. And so I think just sort of talking to my coaches, thinking about what was realistic based on my expectations it just sort of made more sense come like my senior summer when there was like one or two spots open at one or two D1 schools and a bunch of kids fighting for it versus D3 recruiting where no one had committed yet. And it was sort of like a fresh slate. And I was playing like I was playing some of my best lacrosse that summer going into my senior year. Um, So I think all in all, just sort of like timeline wise, it made a lot more sense because I was playing really well in the heart of the D3 recruiting process. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think, you know, you might not even realize it when you're in high school, but down the line, like, being able to use lacrosse as a tool, and I know it's going to take over a huge chunk of your life in the next four or five years, uh, you know, and and Baltimore, I think, prepares you well for that playing in the MIAA, but there's so much more to life that you discover when you get to college that you're going to be interested in, and from my perspective, I mean, I, I think Harvard was a great choice for me. I loved my experience there. But I also think that the balance that a D3 NESCAC school offers is so important for you just mentally. Um, you're going to be able to do so many different things and pursue different things that maybe you wouldn't if you went to Virginia, for instance, or Notre Dame. Um, so I like that as a, you know, as a, you're an example for guys who maybe say, oh, D3, no chance. Um, but you brought up the ACL, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the ACL because for a lot of people that would be just devastating, right? Uh, what's it like for you looking back on that whole thing? Two ACL tears, freshman, sophomore year. Yeah, so, I mean, it's pretty brutal. Like, it's pretty much as brutal as it sounds. Um, the first time, like, it's tough, but to go and re-tear it on your second day back from sport. Playing soccer, right? Yeah, playing soccer, not your main sport. Um, it's pretty demoralizing, and I think that sort of, like, I look back at freshman and sophomore year, I was, like, not as happy as of a person as I have been junior and senior year because lacrosse and sports were always really an outlet for me. Um, to get out of the classroom, to do something not academic, to just sort of forget about everything and go out to a field and run around with your best friends playing the sport you love. I mean, it's called the medicine game for a reason. It's, like, you just – love it so much when you're playing it. But I do think one thing that I got out of it is that heightened appreciation for the sport. Mm -hmm. I don't know if necessarily I would have realized how much I love lacrosse if I hadn't missed those two years. Because just sitting on the sidelines and watching people play just like sort of lights a fire in you and makes you realize how much you want to work hard to get back out there. So I think looking back on it, like obviously it was not a very great experience and something I would never want to go through again, but I did come out the other side learning a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from a resilience point of view, I think you'll be able to look back on that and say, I got through in my life two pretty devastating ACL tears and I got back on the field. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment when 
you know, in reality, when that happened to you, especially twice, you were probably like, oh my God, my life and my aspirations are over, you know, I'm sure that's how it felt. Yeah. I mean, I think for a while it definitely felt like that, especially the second go around just coming like sophomore year is not a great time. Sophomore and junior year, like probably two of the more important years in terms of recruiting. And so to do something during either of those two years is pretty demoralizing with something that you've been working pretty much your whole life for. I mean, I've been playing lacrosse since I was like five or six years old, but you do still, it almost gives you the opportunity to like reset and start fresh. And like when I came back during my summer going into junior year and that junior fall, it almost felt like I was learning how to play lacrosse all over again in the best way possible. Like that fun that you have when you're a little kid out playing rec ball, like that sort of joy and emotion was back into the sport for me. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. How'd you learn or how'd you, I guess, I'm just thinking about coming back from an injury like that, especially doing it twice, the ability to just let go and not think about the knee as you're playing. Like, you know, when you play now, are you still very conscious? I, I feel like that would be a hard thing to move on from mentally, but somehow, I guess it's just trusting your training, right, or trusting your rehab. Yeah, so I think that's a big part of the reason that the second time I've been successful is that my I wasn't 100% confident in my knee going back into the soccer season the second time I tore it. And I had a different surgeon the second time, went to a different PT place, True Sports, worked with uh, Dr. Austin Collish, who was absolutely incredible. Um, he's on my men's league lacrosse team. Oh, really? Yeah. You play with him? He's always trying to get me to come play box on Sundays with him. Um, but he did an absolutely awesome job pushing me. And by pushing me sort of to the brink and to a place where I'd never even come close to during my first time doing rehab. Like, I was so much stronger. I was so much faster. I was so much bigger coming out the second time that I never thought about my knee once. And I think that's a big reason that I felt good and been successful on the field is because I haven't had to think about it because I knew deep inside of me that I had put in the work and that I came out of surgery stronger than I went in the first time. Yeah. Man, that's tough. So when you were injured, how did you, and I remember talking to you and talking to your parents about this, but what are some things that you, I guess, readjusted your folk readjusted your focus towards you know obviously the training and the rehab is one of those things but you know you've been a great student at Gilman you've done really well academically um like how did this setback allow you to readjust and look at different aspects of life in maybe a more open way yeah no so there were definitely some cool opportunities that came out of the ACL injury Um, as you were saying, like rehab and that sort of stuff took up a big chunk of it, but it did leave me with more time to sort of explore some of my other interests. So for example, I started doing mock trial my sophomore year. Um, and that's something that I've had a great passion for and I've been doing ever since. Um, but something that I might not have ventured into if I had lacrosse practice every day. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where like, there were still some positives that came out of that time. Um, I mean, academically, I've always like, I've always been someone who's academically like tried really hard to do well in school. And so that didn't really change that much, but I was left with some more time to explore some other things and mock trial filled a big gap there. Yeah. I was very impressed with the mock trial team going to Chicago and we would go October. 
Yeah. Uh, I think it was like early November because we missed the Gilman McDonough football game. Right. You guys are, I mean, you, your group and the Model UN group are very impressive guys because, yeah. you know, as an advisor or chaperone, I pretty much didn't have to do anything. You guys handled it. Um, for younger guys, freshmen, sophomores, even people who are looking to explore other things, let's hear a little bit about the mock trial and what you guys do and why it's such a great club. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really been a journey for us. When we started sophomore year, we were absolutely horrible. None of us had ever done it before. Myself, Jamie Howard, and Zach Minkin are the three lawyers now, and we have been for the last two years. And all three of us have a huge, like, love and admiration for the law. I think we're all aspiring lawyers and want to go to go on to law school after college. Um, and so we really just, like, fell in love with it and loved reading case books and looking up case law and doing that sort of stuff and arguing and examining and rewriting examinations and cross-examinations and statements. And it's just a lot of fun. And if you're someone who's like interested in doing it, you don't have to be a lawyer. Witnesses are as important as lawyers in the actual mock trial competition from a points perspective. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of these people say, some of the best witnesses are people who know nothing about law and have no interest in law because they're not going to sit there and argue with the lawyer about who's right. It's the, the kids who enjoy acting, who enjoy singing, who can put on a character yeah. and really like read like a four or five page affidavit and really bring that character to life and make the jury believe what they're saying. And so it's less about being someone who knows the law if you're a witness, someone who's going to argue with their lawyer, and it's more about being someone that the jury can trust and that the jury is going to say, like, I believe what you're saying because you really, like, fill that character that you're trying to bring. Mm -hmm. And so it's great because it allows it, – it doesn't – it's not a club just for people who are interested in becoming lawyers. I know, like, mock trial sounds like a club for someone who wants to be a lawyer, but that's not the case. It's a club that sort of anyone can really join – um, and you can find a role for you anywhere. That's good. That's good to know. How did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Um, so my parents have always said from a young age, neither of my parents are lawyers, but I argue a lot like over minute things too. I probably argue with my mom and dad about things that I shouldn't argue about, but I've just always loved doing it. And it's <laughs> been like my natural instinct to yeah. argue. Yeah. Um, and like, I can be wrong and sometimes, like, still completely argue until you just give up on arguing with me. Um, and so they always, like, joked, like, oh, you're going to be a lawyer. Like, haha, like, that's all lawyers do. They just argue all day long. And so when I tore my ACL, I had some extra time, and Zach asked me if I wanted to be a part of the club. And I said, like, yeah, why not? I'll try it out. And after that sort of first year, I was a witness my first year on the team. And then that junior year, they asked me to be a lawyer with – Zach and Jamie asked me to be a lawyer with them. And so something just sort of clicked. And I got really interested in, like, the case law and, like, just sort of the whole, the whole shebang. Mm -hmm. um, and so after that, I like, I was just sort of fell in love with it. I've been reading books about law stuff. I've, my Cousin Vinny's my favorite movie. Incredible movie, by the <laughs> way. Um, Joe Pesci is incredible in that. Um, and then I interned at a law firm last summer. So it's sort of just been some, like, I haven't had a negative experience with it yet. That's great. I mean, to know what you want to do in high school is pretty remarkable. A lot of people don't even know what they want to do when they graduate college, you know, so that's, that's pretty great for you. And you can 
I guess, approach college with that mindset of like, look, I want to take this class for a particular reason to try to set me up for, you know, when I get out and want to go to law school. So that's great. I mean, the mock trial and the model UN, you guys are, you guys are doing good stuff. It was great to see some of those guys act in the play here at Gilman, which I didn't know they had that in them, but like Minkin and Patrick Ryan and Jamie, they were great. Yeah, so Jamie and Zach are both mock trial guys, and I know since the staged reading, it's not real like it's they still put in a ton of work, but it's not like doing the musical where everything has to be memorized. And so I think like sort of as seniors, they had the mindset like, why not do it? Like let's it's our senior year, and we're not going to get a chance to do this again. Um, I went on Sunday night. It was a great time. It was a good laugh. It was a pretty funny play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also lends toward, especially Zach with, he's a, he's a funny guy. And so yeah. he sort of, he sort of fit his role perfectly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a prime example of like, got, I think Gilman gives kids a lot of awesome opportunities to be able to explore different interests that they have. And that's one of the big plot perks about going to school like Gilman, especially as a senior with the tri-school you can basically, t- your class options are double, doubled and tripled mm-hmm. because you can take classes at the girls' school and handpick your schedule. And the number of English and history electives that you have that you wouldn't have access to if you were, let's say, just going to like BL or Loyola or McDonough, these schools that are just like one singular school, it sort of broadens the range of classes and topics and interests that you can cover. Um, and that's really cool. And it also lets teachers teach classes that they want to teach because they can sort of have a certain niche of a class and teach a senior elective in it. And I think that my two English classes this year have been some of the most interesting I've ever had because they're on topics that I'm interested in. Yeah. So tell me about these English classes and maybe we can pull in the book, at least one of the book recommendations. Yeah. So, um, I was in Mr. Daly's modern European intellectual thought class first semester, which was previously taught by Mr. Hubeck. And the class was kept the same. I'm pretty sure the book list was kept the same. Um, But we spent a lot of time at the beginning of the year talking about, like, European philosophy and sort of how, like, the scientific revolution and that sort of stuff, you know, more from a historical lens. And then we started reading, um, like, we read notes from the underground, we read Animal Farm, and we read The Stranger by Camus, which is one of the books I chose to bring today from more of an academic setting. Um, and our copies here. Yeah. Um, so I just thought it was an incredible book and we were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Like we were talking about what makes a book like a classic. Yeah. I like that. Um, and I think the definition that we finished on that I thought was the most interesting was that a classic is a book that you can read a hundred years later and have a different interpretation of, but still be a valid interpretation. And so I think that reading The Stranger now, you probably would think of it differently as if you read it when it first came out, but it still applies to today's world very much so. And so I think that was why I found it so interesting. I agree. And I think that question is so interesting. We, we've discussed that in the English department a lot about what a classic is and teaching classic texts in the high school level. And I'm somebody who believes in the power of the classic book and we can kind of debate like what what's on your list of the canon or what what you determine is a classic but I do think that there are books that withstand the test of time that no matter what period that you read this book even 300 400 500 years into the future from now 
they can still, they've proven that they can withstand changes and, you know, societal changes and political changes, and they still speak to something intrinsic in the human condition, you know, and I think, I like this class. I wish I was in this class. It sounds great. But uh, what is The Stranger as a classic text? What does it speak to in us as human beings? Like, how did you relate to this character who, you know, and I, I just refreshed my memory on this book last night, but he's he seems kind of crazy, right? I mean, he he does all of these things that you're sort of like, why is he not showing emotion at his mother's funeral, for instance? And why is he you know, he shoots someone at the end of the book. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, how that conversation went in this class to relate this fictional character to, the, to, to us today. Yeah. So I think that sort of the, the thing that I took most out of it as applied to today is that Camus purposefully creates this protagonist as, like, the least relatable person ever. Mm-hmm. Like, as you said, he doesn't cry at his mother's funeral. He kills he kills someone and blames the heat. He says it was the heat's fault. Like mm-hmm. you never learn the name of the guy that he kills because it's not about him killing a guy. It's not actually about him going to trial. I think the main, and this is not a direct quote, but the protagonist says like towards the end of the book that he wasn't, he wasn't found guilty for killing someone. He was found guilty because he didn't cry at his mom's funeral. Right. Like there was this whole big scene in the trial about where the other, um, the other the lawyer for the other side is asking him about crying at his mom's funeral and how the main character and the the protagonist he's like basically his lawyer was like can't you just say that you felt a little bit of remorse can't you just say that you felt sorry like you'll get off so much easier but the character refuses to lie and i think that that sort of refusal to lie is sort of the the piece that i took away with me the most it's what camus is saying is wrong with society that there are all these little things that we lie about whether or not you feel remorse at your mom's funeral or not you're going to say that you did mm-hmm. like whether or not you, he literally is asked about it, and he says, I did not care. I don't think there's a single person in the world who would be at their mother's funeral and say they didn't care about her death. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of ability for him not to lie is what makes him so ostracized from the rest of society and makes him stand out. But it's what Camus is arguing is, like, he calls him a hero. And I think that's a whole other discussion about whether or not he is a hero. But he calls him a hero because he refuses to lie, showing that, Society is used to lying about all these little things, and it's what makes society normal. Mm -hmm. And just when I thought about it from that perspective, it really opened my eyes to who we are as a society in today's world. That's really interesting. And I think what I'm thinking about when you're talking about Mersault is his name, right? Merceau. Merceau. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about comedians because you go to a comedy show, and Chesra and I are both fans of comedians, and they've got all these Netflix specials of comedians now. But comedians will just say the most messed up stuff that, you know, you've never really thought about before. And you see the whole audience laughing. You're laughing yourself. And I think the power of comedy is that, you know, in a similar way to this character, there's something refreshing about just telling the truth, even if it's, you know, wrong or, you know, there are curse words in there and they're saying messed up things. You're, la- you're laughing because you know it's true. Right. And there's something I don't I don't remember reading The Stranger. I read it a while ago. I was was trying to reread it for today, but I didn't. Um, There must be something refreshing about this character's refusal to lie in a similar way that it's refreshing to watch a comedian just say things that are on their mind. Yeah, for sure. And I think that like parts of it, like Zach 
Menken's also in that class with me, and we would be reading in class, and we'd just start laughing because of some how absurd some of the things he were saying was. Like the the attention to detail of descriptions of other characters where he would be talking about like how they were fat and like how they had a big bloated but he would say it in the most like like long twisted strand of work. He would spend two or three lines talking about how someone was fat. And like it's just funny. It's it was like comedic in a sense, like very similar to how you say comedians nowadays are like they make fun of the truth. And I think that that sort of comes out a lot in this in some instances where sometimes things are so crazy that there's nothing that you can do but laugh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is this character, would you say he's a likable? Is he a narrator or is it third person? Uh, he's a narrator. He's a narr- is he likable? Um, is that a tough question? Yeah. I mean, li- likable is an int- I think he's really hard to empathize with it's almost impossible to put yourself in his shoes because you you there are very few scenes where you like connect with him and feel emotion how he feels it and so I think in that sense it's sort of hard to like him but you do feel sympathy for him in a way like about the fact that he's being prosecuted for not crying at his mom's funeral he's not being prosecuted for killing someone yeah like so I feel like to that extent you do um, and I think that especially towards the end of the novel, like I found myself starting to like the character more and more through a comedic lens as well, because of like, when you're laughing at something that someone's saying, you're tending to like them more. Like if you go to a comedy show and these people are saying messed up stuff, you still like the, you still like the person doing the comedy because they're funny and they're making you laugh. Right. And I, I think people can be immoral or say immoral things or say messed up things and still be likable. Like I think about a lot of shows that are popular, you know, Breaking Bad or what's the show on HBO? Secession. Oh, great show. Yeah, I'm sure you like that show. Have you watched Billions? No, my mom's watching it though. I'm sure you'd like Billions too. I haven't watched in a while, but a lot of these characters are very immoral and shameful people. And I think every character in Secession is like pretty nasty and not a really good person. But you still like them. Yeah, it you makes know? great TV. Makes great TV. Like, and I think in a similar way, reading about this character Merceau, it's it's I don't know. He seems endearing in kind of a twisted way, and that's what's so interesting about the book. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. Um and we had some great conversations in class about it. Um and we also read notes from the underground, which is sort of in a similar lens, but I didn't like it as much because I found it a much harder read. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I like The Stranger a lot is because it was a pretty easy to comprehend read. And I feel like that lets you take more away from a book versus some book that has like really complex, sen- like you admire the sentences, but you don't really take in everything that's being said. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of like, a, like both of them are considered great books, but I much prefer like the more simple book that has like, allows you to ease more easily understand sort of that meaning behind it. Yeah. I think, Dostoevsky is he's so challenging that it's you know I think the stranger is more suited for a high school class like Dostoevsky is like you really have to study these long winding sentences that express similar truths about human condition but they're they're difficult to perceive part of it's the language I think but also you know he's I think he's a little bit more challenging in, in some ways and the stranger it's it's complicated but it's 
stated in a little, little bit simpler way. Yeah, it's like complicated in the most simple way. It's a story about a couple of days that happen in a guy's life. Right. But it takes on such a huge meaning. It's really incredible. All right, so that's one recommendation. And then you've got another one. For yeah, us. so that was sort of, I felt bad just bringing on a book that I read for school because I do. I found that senior year, I've had more time, and one of the ways I've been spending some of my free time is I've actually been reading books outside of school. Hallelujah. Um, yeah, I, I will say this was like the first time I've read books outside of school since like lower school because you're reading so much in school that there it sort of takes the pleasure out of reading books for fun. Yeah. Um, but this year it's been more relaxed, more chill, and so that's given me more – so like I'm reading before bed now. And over the summer, my dad gave me The Firm to read, which is a book by John Grisham. Um, I absolutely loved it. It was a great story. And the book that I just finished is A Time to Kill, which is Grisham's first novel. Um, It's since been made into a movie, which I have not seen yet, because I'm a firm believer in the fact that books are better Books are better than movies, and they should be read before you watch the movie. Okay. Because otherwise, you're already going to have like a preconceived picture of what the book should look like in your head. Um, but this was—I actually finished this on the plane ride back from Bowdoin this weekend. It was just an absolutely incredible book about a lawyer in the Deep South um, who is defending a black man whose daughter was raped. And he went and shot the two people who raped his daughter. Um, he like had this elaborate plan when they were coming down. Um, they were in the courtroom and then they left. And he was like waiting at the bottom of the stairwell and he shot them. And this story is about so much more than just the trial. It says a lot about sort of the racial injustice in the South. And, um, and that's one part of it that's really interesting. But also... Grisham, like, he was a lawyer. He knows a lot about the law. So a lot of the time is also spent in the courtroom. And so I just find it really interesting to read books about something. Like, I understand that this is a fictional novel and it's not based off real events per se, but it's really interesting. And I find it thrilling to sort of read courtroom novels. Um, And so I'm currently reading another Grisham book, which is, it just came out. It's a sequel to The Firm, another Mitch McDear novel. Um, but I find these very interesting to read more for fun. I I think this is really interesting. Uh, one, because we're talking about the canon and what a classic is. And personally, I wouldn't describe John Grisham as a classic novelist right now, but I, I'm not as an English teacher. And this is what complicates the discussion a little bit because I believe in teaching the classics in high school, but I also think a story like this that has so much history embedded in it that's a easy to follow novel that you loved and you know I think is suited suited for a high school student I, I think like a book like this could make sense in an English curriculum in high school even though it's not a classic yeah no for sure and I think that that's sort of like why it's important to read books for fun too. Yeah. And something that I've realized over the last, like you never would have caught me saying that a year ago. Right. Um, but it's because not like, there are probably like four or five people in my grade who would read this book and be like, oh my God, I love that book. Mm-hmm. Like Zach's probably one of them. Jamie's probably another. Yeah. Um, but every there's like a niche for everyone. Everyone will sort of find that niche that they're interested in. 
Um, and I feel like that's why reading on your own is important because you can just read things you want to read. Everyone in English class complains about how they hate being forced to read certain books. Yep. And that's why I feel like throughout my high school career, like every year you read, in my mind, I read one book that I actually like. Mm-hmm. And I know like as an English teacher, that might be sort of sad to hear, but I feel like it's almost the reality um, because you're trying to sort of broaden your, like the books that you read to cover a bunch of different perspectives and narratives and different kinds of novels and different novels of appeal to different people in different ways. And so I feel like like a book like this would, for example, I'm taking law and literature this semester. Like this is a book that could sort of fit more of like a senior elective theme where you're able to teach to a group of seniors who are particularly interested in like a specific subset or genre. I think so too. And I've actually, I've been thinking a lot about what you're, what you're saying here, student choice in curriculum. And I don't know, I think it would be sort of different and refreshing for a teacher to say, you know, maybe in the last couple of months of the school year, here's a list of 80 books, or 70 books, or even 20 books, you know, pick one of these books, you're going to write about it after you finish it. But at least giving the students some choice in what they're reading, instead of saying, here's the eight books you've got to buy at the beginning of the year. We're going to read them all. I'm not sure how many books so far we've read in American literature that my students have been over the moon about, which, you know, I'm kicking myself a little bit as a teacher because I feel responsible. I picked the curriculum. I want, it to le- I want these books to be meaningful, and I want my students to like them, but you're not going to please everyone. Yeah, I think as an English teacher, you're in an interesting spot because you have that freedom that a lot of teachers don't. When you're in a science class or a math class, like especially the STEM-based classes, you have a set curriculum that you have to get through throughout the year. And of course, there are a certain set of goals that you have to do, and there might be a couple books that you feel like you have to teach as an English teacher, but you sort of have more leeway in terms of what assignments constitute, what books you read. Um, And so I'm a huge believer in letting, especially high schoolers, determine what sort of things they want to read and what their classes are. I think a big part of the reason that this year I've enjoyed school so much more is that I picked every single class that I took. Mm -hmm. And so 45 minutes of reading in modern European intellectual thought goes by a lot faster than 45 minutes of reading for an English 11 book that you don't really feel like reading. Um, And so for that reason, like, it doesn't really feel like work. And I feel like that's sort of the beauty in getting to choose your classes is you can pick what you're interested in and then you're going to be more willing to do that work. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I'm writing a paper this semester and that's like, people are like, why are you writing a paper? It's your second semester senior year. Don't you like just want to do as little work as possible? But it's something that I'm so interested in that when I'm doing it, it doesn't even feel like work. Mm -hmm. It's fun. And I think what you're talking about is this is the free speech paper. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about free. You're talking about free speech and giving people a voice in your classes. You know, students, and I felt like this as a student myself. Like I want to be able to dictate where we go. I want to be able to have a say in things, and that's freedom of speech. I mean, that's the that's the foundation of it, right there. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of sort of looking at it. Um, For my paper, I'm looking at it more from like a historical lens and from the lens of like Supreme Court cases. Um, My advisor is my AP Gov teacher who teaches over at Bryn Mawr, who was a practicing attorney, did a lot of like defamation lawsuits 
and that sort of stuff when she was an attorney. Um, but it's interesting when you think at like the heart, a big question and a big piece of the paper that I'm dedicating my time to is what is speech? What constitutes speech? And a lot, speech isn't just something that's spoken or something that you watch. It's also, there's also symbolic speech and things like that. And so the idea of what speech is has expanded so much over the last 50, 60 years with innovations and in technology mm-hmm. um, that it's really interesting to see like how much freedom we really have. Yeah, and especially with social media. I mean, I, I this is such an interesting time in history to be writing a paper like this. I think of Twitter right away and maybe why Elon Musk, because he's lost a lot of money for buying Twitter, right? I mean, he's he spent a lot of money on that company, but I think, I think he probably thought about how important it is just to be able to have a place to freely express yourself um, without, I mean, before there was a lot going on on Twitter, shadow banning and different algorithms going on. And I think, I don't know, I think Elon Musk really does treasure free speech in every fashion. And a lot of people take issue with that. But I don't know, I think he's an interesting figure to look at in this whole conversation. Yeah, very interesting. A, a bit of a polarizing character, I feel like. Sure. You either love him or you hate him. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you can sort of look at his takeover as Twitter, like he's going to like preach the whole free speech thing, but how true that really is, like who really knows. Um, and, but I do think it's interesting, like how do you draw the line between allowing free speech, but also not spreading misinformation? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's also very important that, for example, a group of high schoolers walking around Gilman aren't being told false things about the news Mm -hmm. and then spreading that and believing that. And so there's a really fine line that you have to walk between allowing misinformation to be spread while between like allowing free speech, but not allowing misinformation. Um, And so I think there is sort of a difference there, but legal precedent says that you even if someone says something that's wrong they're still allowed to say it Mm -hmm. so i think that that's sort of where the whole elon musk thing comes into play but like there are people who use twitter as a news source and so how how do you feel how many people are educated enough to know that something they're reading might not be true and i think that's when you get to the heart of the issue surrounding censorship and things like that Mm -hmm. about how news is shared and what news stories are shared and that sort of stuff i mean you saw the fox news um like lawsuit that settled a couple months ago for hundreds of it was a lot of money i don't remember exactly how much it was um but it was because they defamed dominion And so you get into the issue with, like, defamation and that sort of stuff, and that's when you can restrict free speech, when someone's, like, purposefully saying false things, knowing that what they're saying is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's still, like, a fine line to walk there, and I think Twitter's an interesting platform to look at that because anyone can share any just about anything on the platform. Yeah, and who is going to control the levers and basically play God right, and say this cannot be out there, but this can, especially in the age of simultaneously developing AI tools, which are making fake videos and fake audio recordings and fake photos. I mean, it's so fascinating, but it's really dangerous. And it, it, it is an interesting position that you're in 
right now and we're all in thinking about, okay, what is free speech and what is allowed and what should be censored? Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I naturally lean towards the side of people need to be informed and be able to comb through all information and figure out what's true. They need to, you know, people need the tools and the education in order to be able to do that because I fear that if the power of censorship gets into the wrong hands, whoever that might be, I think that's more dangerous than um, than just restricting things. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. And I feel like sort of the perspective that we have to look at this through, though, is you went to a high school similar to Gilman in Conestoga, um, and then you went on to Harvard. Right, you were right. given the tools to be able to distinguish what seems fishy versus what is true right. and, and what's right and what's wrong. And there are a lot of people who don't have access to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's sort of how do we get people access? If we're going to live in a world where anything can be shared, how are we going to give those people access to make sure that they're making informed decisions on their own and they're not being told what to think? Mm -hmm. That's tricky. That's education. And that's, you know, why there's such a harsh focus on critical thinking, not harsh, but there's an intensified focus on teaching critical thinking skills at the high school level, the middle school level at Gilman. But again, not everyone has the, that education, you know, so it's, it's tricky. Um, but very interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm super excited to write the paper. Um, it's something that I'm really interesting in, interested in. And I think that it's going to be like one of those things where I can bury my head in it for hours and it'll feel like 15 minutes. Good stuff. Love that. All right, Brooksy. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for coming on. It's about time. I think this is a good time to have you in here. Senior year, you're doing some free reading, getting ready for lacrosse season. Um, yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. It was a good time. Which I was ready. Thank you.